Good morning. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. Uh, Merry New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. This, you guys, this is, this is time to open up to John chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to uh, have one in your laps. Raise your hand and, and uh, Bill will bring you one. Feel free to keep this Bible if you don't have one or leave it in your seat when we leave this morning. Well, we as a church family are getting back into the Gospel of John. We're going to continue following Jesus together. And we now are moving into our next section of Jesus' uh, teaching in this farewell discourse. Just by way of reminder, we followed Jesus for the three years of his public ministry. And now we are in those three hours of this last supper. He's washed the disciples' feet. Judas has left to betray him. And then now we're preparing for his trials and crucifixion and three-day burial. And in this singular context of the upper room discourse, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit at different points. And so if you're taking notes, the subtitle this morning is Who is the Holy Spirit? Part 3. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit up in chapter 15, twice in chapter 14. So I've titled it this way so that you can go back online and listen to part 1 and part 2 and get a uh, synthesis of what Jesus teaches about the person work of the Holy Spirit. Well, Lord willing, next week will be part four. With that, if you would, join me in John 16, picking up right in the middle of verse four, down to verse 15. I'm going to read it and then pray and we'll, we'll jump into the sermon. Beginning in the middle of verse four of John 16, Jesus is speaking and he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare it to you, declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would give us understanding according to your word, that these words of Jesus about the ministry of the Spirit would be effective in our lives. And so we ask your Spirit to both illuminate the text of Scripture 
to give us hearts that would rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure, that the Spirit would satisfy us with your love on this morning. We pray that Jesus would be made famous in this place and that sorrowful and, and hurting hearts would be healed and find the hope of Christ. That those, Lord, who don't know you would come to know you by the ministry of your Spirit and that all of us would be satisfied with the goodness and greatness of your gospel that you give us in Jesus. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all of God's people said, amen. Well, this morning we've woken up and we have turned the page on yet another chapter of our lives. Another year has passed. And in this season of reflection, thinking about maybe resolutions we made a year ago that we fulfilled, most of which we did not, perhaps new resolutions going into this new year and more, there is a question that surrounds or undergirds all those other questions that, that every person ought to ask, Christian or non-Christian. How is it possible that any of us can make it through life? How is it possible? Maybe we are aware or maybe we are unaware that we functionally think that we, in and of ourselves, have the power, have the intellect, the ingenuity, that we have the control to make our lives what they are. I mean, you might be able to look in the rearview mirror and see decisions that you've made educationally, vocationally, whatever it is, relationally to bring you where you are and and you might be tempted to take credit for those things but if we are honest with ourselves especially as christians in the grand scheme of things we know that we don't have the power we don't have the control we don't have the ingenuity we don't have the wisdom we don't have anything in and of ourselves to make it from one day to the next let alone through a year, as Christians, we need to ask the, the, the question, who gets the credit for carrying us from one year to the next? Do we carry ourselves? Well, we know the answer is, is Jesus. As we enter this new year on this new year morning, this new year of what's going to likely be increasing tumultuous times, it is God's kind providence, as we jump back into the Gospel of John, that we're going to spend, Lord willing, this week and next, thinking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of Zechariah 4.6, a beautiful passage where that Old Testament prophet declares, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what Jesus tells us this morning and what we've already seen in chapters 15 and 14 and what's to come, Jesus is almost expanding on that biblical truth, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This now is our fourth encounter with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is teaching on him here in this upper room discourse. So who is the Holy Spirit? What is his purpose and role in our lives? That and more is what Jesus continues to explain this morning. So if you're taking notes, here's the two points of our message. 
Point number one, the Holy Spirit benefits you. So rely on him. That's verses four through seven. And then point number two, the Holy Spirit guides the church. So rely on him. And that's verses 12 to 15. And you'll notice that those verses don't match up. There's a chunk missing, verses 8 through 11. And Lord willing, that's what we will see next week in part 4. Well, let's, let's begin with that first point. The Holy, the Holy Spirit benefits you, so rely on him. Let's look again at verses 4 through 7. Beginning again in the middle of verse 4, Jesus is speaking. He has just spoken to the disciples of the coming persecution, their coming time of being cast out of synagogues and even killed with people thinking that they are serving God by killing the apostles. And now Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Well, Jesus knows the apostles, their hearts. Their hearts are filled with sorrow because Jesus has announced his departure. And as I just mentioned, he's just told them that they are going to be persecuted ostracized, abandoned, betrayed, and even killed for the name of Jesus. And sorrow has filled their hearts. Now, I think that if we were there with the 11 sitting there with Jesus, their feet clean because he has washed, washed them with that toweled waist. Judas is out betraying them. And, and now, if we were sitting there, I think sorrow seems to be a, a reasonable emotion. It seems reasonable to me to think that they would feel the same, we would feel the same if we were in their shoes. And we remember that this whole discourse that Jesus is giving, he's trying to untrouble their troubled hearts. But think about what we just celebrated. Put, put perspective on this. We, we just celebrated Christmas. We just celebrated the reality of the long-awaited promise given by God that God himself would come to rescue us. That God would rescue us in the person of his son. That in the incarnation, the unthinkable happened. The true God became true man. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh. And when Jesus took on flesh, it wasn't like he had a cloak on the outside and God on the inside. No, he was fully God through and through and fully man through and through. And, and this is the God-man who's, who's just untoweled his waist and put on his um, outer garment. And he's teaching the apostles. And he was as truly God and truly man. They're, they're looking at him. And the words that Jesus is saying to them. They're seeing in Jesus' eyes that here's the man who alone of all humans who have ever existed. It's Jesus alone who lived the perfect and sinless life. Fully obeying every word of the Father as his delight. 
And they're, they're looking at Jesus who said he's going to depart. And they recognize that Jesus is the last Adam. He's the one who has begun or he, who began to undo the curse on creation ever since the garden. That Jesus was taking the future new creation and breaking it into the present with all of his miracles. Giving sight to the blind. Curing the sick. Raising the dead. Wind and waves obeying his voice. Food multiplied in his hands. And, and his teaching. All that these men heard of Jesus' teaching, whoever spoke like Jesus. That the words that came from Jesus' lips were nothing less than the very words of life. The truth that sets all who believe free. And he's leaving. So, so yes, it seems reasonable that sorrow filled their hearts because God the Son incarnate was going away. And this is what makes Jesus' words so astounding. And astounding is too small of an adjective to describe what Jesus says. Look again at verse 7. Jesus tells them, Nevertheless, yes, your hearts are sorrowful, but nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. Do you believe that? Do you think they believe that? How is that even possible? Jesus is telling them, the Messiah, the Christ, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. That word advantage means what it means in Greek is what it means in English. It means that Jesus is saying there is a benefit. There is a profit. That's why this first point is the Holy Spirit benefits you, so rely on him. Jesus is saying that his departure is an advantage. And the implication is if he does not depart, there's no benefit for you. There's no profitability for you. There's no advantage for you. How in the world can it be true? It seems insane that Jesus would say that it would be profitable for him to leave. What, what, what possible benefit could there be for Jesus to depart? What advantage could exist to have the, quote, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's leaving. How is it an advantage to have him leave? Now, what would you expect Jesus to say? Maybe if you and I were sitting there with the apostles, we would, we would we'd, we'd, um, respectfully push on them a little bit. Well, what's the advantage, Jesus? How could we possibly benefit with you leaving us alone from our perspective? I would expect Jesus to explain, well, well here's the advantage. Here, let me tell you why it's to your benefit that I leave. I, I would expect Jesus to say something like this. Well, it's to your advantage because I'm going to be nailed to a cross on your behalf. I am going to climb up on a cross and take your sin upon myself 
so that my righteousness might be given to you, your spiritual bankruptcy credited to me and my righteousness credited to you. I might expect him to say something like that is our advantage. Or Jesus saying that his going to the cross was to take and divert the Father's wrath against me and you upon himself so that that would open the floodgates of God's love upon us. I would expect him to say that that's what the advantage would be. For him, Jesus, to say that if you simply believe in me and my life and my cross work for you and the work that I've done that you can't do, I have a free gift of eternal life for you. I'd expect him to say that's what our advantage is. That's not what he says. He doesn't say any of that. Now, it is implied, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is giving us an advantage that's beyond the cross and beyond the empty tomb and beyond his ascension into heaven and his session, his seating at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is giving us something even more, if you could say there's something more than that good gospel of our salvation and the Savior that he is. Look again at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away for. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. If Jesus did not go to the cross, for our sins. If Jesus did not raise from the grave for our justification, if he did not ascend into heaven to take the seat at the right hand of the Father, then the gift of the Holy Spirit could not be gifted to the church. In the middle of verse 7, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. We've seen in, back in chapter 14 that Jesus made this astounding promise, and he's still building off the same context of what he was talking there. He says that he's going to give another helper. And if you recall back in John 14, we got excited about the word another because in Greek there are multiple words for another, not like our language. And in the Greek... The word for another helper that Jesus promises, it's good that he goes. The word another means another of the same kind. There's a word for another of a different kind. But Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, the helper of the same kind that Jesus is. You see, part of the grand and broad sweep of redemptive history and God relating to people only via covenant, covenant relationships. And the promise of the prophets was that God was going to make a new, everlasting covenant of peace. Read John, uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, lots of other texts. And part of what makes the new covenant new, the ceremony we celebrate every Sunday in the Lord's Supper, the sign of the new covenant, part of what makes the new covenant new is that the unending, indwelling relationship ministry of the Holy Spirit we will get. The advantage 
is that God was with us as Emmanuel, the name that we use of Jesus, because it means God with us. And Jesus looks at the sorrow-filled apostles and says, it's good that I'm leaving you, because apparently we get something even greater that builds on Jesus' presence. How is that possible? The possible possibility is that God is no longer going to be with us in Christ, though he will be for eternity, but he will also be in us in the person of his Holy Spirit. Something we saw last time that the language of the Bible is that prior to the cross and empty tomb, the Spirit would come, a, would come upon or empower people for ministry. But something decisively new has taken place with Jesus breaking forth out of the grave as the new creation, first fruits of our resurrection. When Jesus rose, something changed in that the omnipresent Spirit now uniquely in believers dwells us. Here's why this is an advantage for you. God's aim in the gospel is not merely to save you and wipe away your sins, to be mildly frustrated with you, tell you to shape up or ship out, and then be on your merry way. No, God's aim in the gospel is to joyfully save you from your sins, save you from his wrath, bring you, make you a new creation, bring you into his presence. But more than that, God's aim in the gospel is that he would indwell you forever to world without end. God's desire for intimacy and closeness, God's desire to be with his people is astounding. That's the advantage of Jesus going to the cross. So that God would be with us in his son and in us in his spirit. The advantage that Jesus gives you and me and all believers and all churches is a nearness of God. So near that he is not simply with us, but in us happily to world without end. And so here's what we need to do with this. Rely on this truth. Rely on the reality that God is in you. And, and here's my admonition. Stop relying on your subjective feelings to dictate whether you think the Spirit is in you or not. The Spirit is not a power meter that goes up or down. That today, right now, you know what, you haven't been a really good... Christians, so you have 73% Holy Spirit power in your life. Just as justified as we were, fully and finally with Jesus' blood, we are fully filled with His Spirit. And in our day and age, brothers and sisters, we are prone. We are prone to think you hear this truth that sounds amazing, and so we want to feel it more than we want to believe it. And then when our feelings don't match what we think this says, we think that something is broken in us, Wrong with us or wrong with the Bible, but what I'm asking you to do is to believe God more than what you feel. And I dare say that it's even in those moments when we feel Him least that He is closest and most in us, as it were. In our subjective age, we take what we intuit and feel 
and make that the litmus test of God's presence. And what we're seeing here, the advantage of the Spirit is that when He comes to indwell us, maybe remember this from some weeks back, the difference between a New Testament believer and an Old Testament believer is in the Old Testament, the Spirit could leave somebody. He left Saul. David repenting after Bathsheba in Psalm 51, please don't take your spirit from me. That's the verse a Christian can never pray. Because God promises to never leave us nor forsake us, and Jesus does that in the person of the Spirit. Believe God, friends, more than what you feel. You see, their hearts were sorrowful, and it may very well be that your heart is sorrowful too. They were sorrowful at Jesus leaving them, and you may think that he is never with you, and what I want you to know is that the Bible is telling you the truth. If you're trusting in Jesus' work and not yours, his blood and not yours, his empty tomb and what you can't do. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're full of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. So the Holy Spirit is to your benefit. He is to our advantage. So rely on him. Rely on the truth more than what you think and what you feel. And more than that, point number two, the Holy Spirit guides the church so keep relying on him. Let's skip down to verses 12 to 15. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine. And therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. One of the things that amazes me about God's spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is that he is far more pervasive and extensive than we appreciate. Uh, we, we just saw the advantage of the Holy Spirit in the previous point extends even beyond the cross and tomb in that he indwells us. But now what Jesus says here is, is, is remarkable. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is implying, or he's stating rather in these, these verses, that the ministry of the Spirit Spirit extends beyond his indwelling ministry in you and me, his empowering us for life and godliness, his sealing us for glory, Ephesians chapter 1. What Jesus says here in chapter 16 links with what he already told us back in 1426. If you would just glance over there, turn your page, wherever it is, find 1426. Listen to what Jesus says here about this promise of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to connect verse 26 of chapter 14 with verse 13 in chapter 16. 1426, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance 
all that I have said to you. Okay, hold that. Now, now connect it to 1613. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. In these two verses, Jesus is speaking of the same subject, same topic. Certainly the person of the Spirit, but he is telling the apostles on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, what the Holy Spirit will do uniquely in the lives of the apostles. We saw in these two verses that the Holy Spirit is going to be teaching and reminding and guiding and declaring what? All of Jesus' words. Holy Spirit's not coming down to do different teaching or different work. The Holy Spirit is another helper of the same kind as Jesus, and the Holy Spirit continues the work of Christ in and through the body of Christ. Okay, so 1426, 1613, teaching, reminding, guiding, and declaring all the words of Jesus. What does this mean? What, what, what is the significance for you and me that Jesus is saying here? Well, when verse 13 talks about the Spirit guiding the apostles, our default postmodern New Age era thinks that the Spirit's guidance is subjective feelings, strong inklings, lucid dreams that get baptized as the guiding of the Spirit. But in this context, did you catch what the Spirit's guidance is? What the apostles, what the Spirit will do in the apostles? It's, well, the Bible. Did you, did you see those connections? The Spirit's guidance is the book that you hold in your hands called the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we refer to the book as the apostolic word. Because Jesus, by his poured out spirit, benefited the apostles and the church by finishing and completing the writing of the Bible. There are no other books after the book of Revelation that are inspired. What does this mean? Jesus promised these 11 men that the Holy Spirit would remind them all that Jesus said. They're not going to have foggy memories. Luke is not going to sit down or, 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 or uh, Peter's not going to sit there and say, uh, Hey, James, what did Jesus say on the mountain again? That's not going to happen. They're not going to have foggy memories. The Spirit is going to remind them of what Jesus said. These writers and finishers and completers of the Bible, the apostles... They would not need to speculate. They would not need to embellish on religious experiences. They would not need to operate off of hunches or impressions. They're not going to make it up. Jesus is guaranteeing, he's prophesying and promising that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, one of the many benefits and advantages that comes to us is that the Holy Spirit would make sure that when these guys sat down to finish writing the Bible, what they wrote was right. And then now, 
codified in the book and transmitted to us. The Holy Spirit would teach these guys, declare to them Christ's revelation, give them understanding and insight to what Jesus said and taught, and the Spirit would guide them into all truth, meaning the Spirit would lead them to Jesus' desired destination. In this case, finishing writing the Bible. What this means for us is that all this joins together in what's called the inspiration of Scripture. This Bible, your book, this is not man's musings and sage-like hunches. Uh, It's not religious intuitions. It's not religious experiences that are self-interpreted by some guy. The Bible itself, this book, is the very voice of Christ. If you want to hear God speak, read it out loud. This book is God's verbal presence. This this book is, is not a window that we look through to get behind to find revelation in some historical event. No, this true story of the world is God's revelation and meaning of the historical event. You don't need anything else. You have this book. It's in this book, by the power of the Spirit, that God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is included in, for example, 2 Timothy 3.16. Remember what Paul says there? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Not some Scripture, not uh, portions of Scripture, but all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And, And it's in our older English translations where we get the word inspired, where it said all Scripture is inspired by God. The problem is that nowadays that word inspired means one of two things, either like Shakespeare writing a really good idea, and so he's, oh, a stroke of genius. Uh, John did not have a stroke of genius when he wrote the Gospel of John. He was full of the Spirit of God who directed uh, John's pen to write everything Jesus wanted to write. That's what it means that he was inspired The other way to misunderstand uh, inspiration is to inspire is to draw air in, to take a breath. Another way to think of this is that all scripture is breathed out. It's exhaled by God and it's profitable for knowing right, knowing wrong, getting right and staying right. Or consider another text, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 to 21. Listen to Peter's testimony. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, Born from heaven, for we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, and the whole book is prophecy, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what's amazing about this. This means that you can actually entrust the entirety of your life, not just in this age, but in the eternal next, to this book. The notion that some sneaky Christians snuck in and made up fairy tales and fables or as a uh, misogynistic political ploy or whatever the deal, whatever, whatever people say, the answer is no, because this is not man's word and it's not his religious hunches. It is God himself divinely speaking in the book to us. For someone to claim that sneaky Christians snuck in and changed it or whatever, whatever all through the millennia assault come against the book, the book is still here because textual transmission, manuscript evidence, fancy ways of saying that before the printing press, there is no book in all of human history that is attested and as proven as the Bible. Manuscripts are written by hand, scrolls, codexes, little books, and they're in all different languages in all different parts of the world. And so if sneaky Christians snuck in and changed it, you could compare the, the Georgian manuscripts with the uh, Coptic manuscripts and then see what was changed and there's not changed. In other words, Jesus is promising and prophesying that the ministry of the Spirit would also preserve through the apostles, not just the finishing of the Bible, but to get the Bible to you, and so that you would be willing, like our brothers and sisters in the past, to spill our own blood for the truth of the word. The Christian can have nothing but rock-solid, oak-like, granite-strong, other adjective you can bring to this trust that the Bible is true. All Scripture really is breathed out by God. These guys really didn't produce this by the will of man, but by the will of the Spirit. And what's amazing, amazing upon amazing, is that the same Spirit who inspired, breathed out this text to give to us, is the exact same Spirit who illuminates the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That any person can read definitions and even do sentence diagramming and understand what this says. But illumination means it's the Spirit of God who wrote this through man is the Spirit who gives understanding to man of this book. In other words, we need to read it by faith. And that comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Spirit are inseparable. The Spirit never works contrary to the Word. He always works with the truth of the Word. And this Bible is why when we gather together, brothers and sisters, we pray this Bible, we sing this Bible, we study this Bible, we preach the Bible, 
we see the Bible on display in baptism in the Lord's Supper because the Spirit of God works with the Word of God because, well, it's the gospel's the power of God for salvation. And, and, and faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so it's the Spirit's unleashing the Word of God and He accomplishes His purposes in us. So, so rely on the Spirit. The advantages know no end of God's love for us through Jesus, by the Spirit, not just to save us, wash our sins away, give us the assurance of our future resurrection, but now He's given us a light to our feet and lamp to our path to guide us in this dark world. Praise God! And because the Word is living and active, it's going to mess with you. The book's dangerous. Because every time you read it, the truth doesn't change but the Spirit of God brings you deeper and deeper and gives you broader and broader vistas of the glory of Jesus' face in every word of the Bible. So relying on the Holy Spirit, then, includes relying on him, on him in prayer to make the word known to you. The Holy Spirit to give you a heart to believe and trust and treasure this word, to, to open all of our eyes to see the wonderful things of Christ in his good gospel. Relying on the Holy Spirit means recognizing that what you and I hold in our hands, this completed book, is the fulfillment of what Jesus promises when he would pour out the Spirit upon the guys. The Holy Spirit is our advantage because he administers Jesus' joy to us. He, he administers Jesus' peace to us. The Spirit preserves us through the Father's pruning in our lives. The Spirit bears God's fruit in us and through us as we abide in Christ. All of those are advantage points, so to speak, in these previous chapters we've looked at. Have you ever wondered why you're still a Christian? Is it because you're so good at being a Christian? Guess what I'm about to say. None of us is good at being a Christian. We are still a Christian because Jesus promises to never leave us nor forsake us by his spirit. It's the perfections of our Savior that keep us close to him. It's, it's the reminder of his blood that has washed away our sins, our shames, our guilt, our sorrows, past, present, and future. It's Jesus who keeps us and preserves us as his body. Why can you face the troubles of life and get out of bed this morning? Is it because you're so strong and empowered on your own? No. You can get out every morning of bed and you can face what the day is going to give you because God's spirit is with you. His word is active in you and God will see you through. Why do you believe the Bible? Is it because you're smarter than other people? It's because God loves you. That's why you believe the Bible. We're hungry for the word preached. We're desirous to talk about scripture with each other. We're, we're willing to submit our whole life to this book all because of the help and advantage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So one evidence for those of us who struggle with assurance of our salvation, am I really loved by Jesus? How could he love someone like, like me? Well, he does. One of the assurances is that we gather together week in and week out because you want that word preached. You want the word sung. 
You want Christ exalted. But understand this. These individual advantages, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit given to each Christian, especially applying the word to our lives, is not a privatized, individualistic, just me and Jesus, church doesn't matter experience. It's the one spirit and one faith and one baptism and one Bible that binds us all together as the one body of Christ and family of Jesus. So reliance on the spirit is both individual and corporate. We need God's spirit every single moment. So does Flag Bible. So does Mountain View. So does Grace. So does Calvary. So, does, so do all gospel preaching churches. We all need God's spirit. And without him, we are lost. And so the great gospel gift we get is not just salvation. <laughs> you could say it that way. But God himself desirous to dwell in us. The third person of the Trinity indwells us corporately as the temple of God. He binds us together in the same shared faith of the gospel. He knits us together with a shared understanding of the word. He ministers that word to and through us and one another because it's all about Jesus. It's all according to his word. It's all about the ministry of the spirit. It's all to the glory of God. It's all to our joy and our neighbor's good. So friends, let that be your ringing anthem into this new year. Christ is for us. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. And the Father's joy is to accomplish and plan all those purposes. Amen? Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the grace that you pour on us, grace upon grace. Grace that we can barely scratch the surface of to understand how deeply lost we were without you how deeply loved we are by you, and how amazingly empowered we are by your Spirit. So, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Oh, Lord, accomplish your purposes in us. Build us and grow us, Holy Spirit, into the image of Jesus, and let us be instruments in your hands to see the lost saved and the saved growing further into the image of Christ. In whose name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Friends, let's stand, we'll sing this one song, and then Scott Porter will come up and lead us to the Lord's table.